Today we begin a three-week series simply entitled, Unseen Forces. Now, in our sophistication of today, we, many find the concept of Satan, the devil, Lucifer, or whatever name you want to use, an antiquated concept. Such imagery may have been necessary for people of a less intellectual time or a less intellectual basis, but today, we in the 21st century, we know better. You see, the whole idea of demon possession must be the stuff of horror movies on an equal par with vampires or aliens from outer space or the return of Godzilla. The enemy himself couldn't be more pleased with such dismissal. He works best in anonymity. He likes being an unseen force. I must say that the, dis the whole discussion of this at times does seem fanciful. Dante certainly did us no favors by creating this creature of red with horns and tail and pitchfork. So, so why this morning study this subject? Oh, I know, it's the staff trying to scare us all. No, no, this, this is not a fear motivation. We don't want to do that to you. Uh, but I believe there are some very logical reasons for this study that I want to share those with you this morning. And keep in mind, this is not an in-depth study. This is only an overview. An in-depth study would take weeks to explore this subject in its entirety. But let me give you a few thoughts this morning. One reason I think we ought to study this subject is because of the great amount of Scripture passages devoted to it. Uh, consider this. Adam is mentioned by name 21 times, Noah 54 times, Daniel 76 times, Mary the mother of Jesus 26 times, the Apostle Thomas, one of my favorites, 11 times. But the name Satan or devil is used 80 times. And that doesn't include the many descriptive terms like beast or dragon, Lucifer, and the many more that are used for him. Add to that fact that the word demon shows up 80 times in, in general, uh, in addition to the personal name of Satan or the devil, and, and you start to get this idea, wow, there is a lot of Scripture devoted to this particular character. Now, if we have no problem believing that Noah, Daniel, Mary, and Thomas are real people, why do we struggle with the reality of Satan? Well, it's because we can't see him. Well, 75 to 80% of Americans strongly believe in the existence of God, and we have not seen him. How many of you believe that germs are real? Let me see your hand. Do you believe in germs? Yeah, well, yes, but science tells us about the presence of germs, and I've both seen and experienced the impact of viral and bacterial attacks. That's true. Science has given us evidence of germs. They've told us about germs. But God has told us about the devil. And haven't you both seen and experienced the impact of his tempting attacks? Additionally, in all of the, the scriptures that we find about Satan himself, Jesus believed in him and warned us about him. George Barna's research indicates that three out of five Americans do not believe in the existence of a literal devil, that Satan is merely a symbol of e evil. Surprisingly, Christians are not very far behind in those statistics. As a matter of fact, if statistics are halfway accurate this morning, 50% of you in this room do not believe in a real, literal devil. Now, if that percentage is remotely accurate. It is disturbing to me. 
Because it would suggest either a lack of biblical knowledge or a disbelief in what the Bible says and teaches or a total disregard for what Jesus believed and taught. Do you believe? One little boy in Sunday school class was asked whether or not he believed in Satan. He responded to the teacher said, nah, I think it's like the tooth fairy. He's just your dad. <laughs> Good news for us dads, it is not us. Another reason to study the subject is to become knowledgeable in a defensive manner. Uh, the, the simple knowledge that colds and flus can be communicated by touch and that simply washing one's hands helps in the prevention of the spread of colds and flu, that's important knowledge. Knowing what to expect from our enemy helps us be prepared to be on the defense when he attacks. Mark Twain once quipped, he said, the person I'd most like to meet is the devil. Anybody who can hold the allegiance of nine-tenths of the world's population for such a long time must be a fascinating person. The reality is that Mark Twain didn't believe in Satan, nor could he bring himself to believe in God. But he's right about so many people being influenced by the enemy. I want you to know that I believe Satan is real. I, I have no problems believing that he is a real power and force, a real personality. Now, I've mentioned already what I think are the two most important and compelling reasons, uh, the vast amount of biblical information and the fact that Jesus himself believed in Satan. But there, are, but there are other reasons to believe as well. I don't need any more, but you might. Others that you know might as well. I just find the others kind of interesting. For instance, I've often found the natural world to be filled with illustrations of the spiritual world. Just look around you at nature, and you'll see all kinds of spiritual lessons here, there, and yonder. We talk about some of those uh, on a regular basis. But have you, have you ever noticed that nearly everything in the plant and animal kingdoms have their natural predators? Crops are subject to pests and insects and blight. And most creatures have an enemy. Even the deadly cobra is often no match for the mongoose. Very few animals fear nothing, uh, with the possible exception of the honey badger, that will attack anything without discretion. We saw a t-shirt last year while we were on vacation that simply said, honey badger don't care. <laughs> a honey badger can afford not to care. You and I can't afford not to care when it comes to our spiritual enemy. Now, don't misunderstand me this morning. I'm not suggesting that vicious animals are controlled by the devil. Well, snakes maybe. <laughs> All I'm suggesting is that nature itself is an illustration that there are two diametrically opposed forces at work in this world, that there is the predator at work in this world. Now, if that doesn't convince you, then let me add this question to you. How do we explain the intense wickedness of this world? Humanism would suggest that human nature continues to improve and evolve, and that given enough time, human beings will actually get to a point where they're, they're basically always good. I'm not seeing it. I don't know about you. I'm not seeing it. How, how do we explain human trafficking? 
Just recently, 276 Nigerian girls were kidnapped for resale. They will be used as slaves for forced labor, sexual exploitation, or organ donation. Who would be so cruel as to capture these young lives and ruin them? Furthermore, who would be so cruel as to buy them, to use them for forced labor or sexual exploitation or to take their lives for organ donation? And that's only a drop in the bucket compared to the, to the people around the world. The number is only small compared to the thousands of young ladies and young men that are forced into human trafficking in a multi-billion dollar business. Where does such evil come from? It is estimated that just since the beginning of the 20th century, just a little over 100 years, attempts at genocide of one group over another have resulted in over 45 million deaths. That does not even count the 20 million Soviet lives killed under Stalin and the 40 million Chinese lives killed under Mao Zedong. Add to such atrocities, suicide bombings, serial killings, school shootings, terrorist attacks, inhumane torture, and more. How do we explain such depravity in this world apart from the presence of evil? I'm always amazed how that when things go wrong, people want to blame God. When was the last time the news gave us some tragedy as it does? And somebody said, boy, the enemy sure is hard at work. See, evil didn't just happen. We have an enemy whose chief purpose it is to destroy us spiritually, and he'll stop at nothing to accomplish his task. He may be an unseen force, but he is a force to be reckoned with. On the Sunday a few weeks ago when we were going through the book of Ephesians, we studied the armor of God. Do, do you remember how that passage is introduced? In Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10 and following, it says, Finally, Paul is summarizing some of the things that he has written before that, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you may be able to take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places or realms. Paul says, be strong in the Lord. He is the source of our strength and resistance. And this word strong here is the very same word that we find in that passage that all of us love, Philippians chapter 4, verse 13. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. The word strength and the word strong, same word. Paul says, our strength, our ability to resist is in him. So be strong in the Lord, not your own power. And take your stand. This means to stand firm. It means don't surrender or give up ground to the enemy, but in fact prevail over him. And he says our struggle, and the word is literally our wrestling match, is not against flesh and blood. In other words, folks, this is not a human battle. If it were a human battle, Paul would have said, get your bodies ready for this. This is going to be hard, hard work out on the battlefield. No, this is why we prepare our minds, our wills, and our souls. Our fight against Satan is as fearful to our spiritual survival as biological warfare is to our physical survival. What makes anthrax or something similar so insidious is that you can't see it, smell it, feel it, hear it, or even be aware of it until it's too late? 
Satan works with similar stealth. Just when you think you've mastered your weaknesses, he moves in for the kill like a lion stalking a weakened prey. The demonic hordes under Satan's authority, the powers that are unleashed on an unsuspecting world, and the evil intent to thwart the will and the plan of God all take place in a different realm, a different dimension. This is not a physical battle. Your war is not against another human being. Your war, your fight is against the enemy. You say, well, when, when did this war begin? Take a look at Revelation chapter 12, verse 7. And there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. Now, we don't have a whole lot in the, in the, in the Bible about the beginning of all of this battle. I guess it is not important that we know how it began, just that it is very intense. But from a few passages of Scripture, we can piece together, perhaps piece together, the ancient history and origins of Satan. And, and it may go something like this. Apart from the creation of the universe, the creation of the world, and creation of, of us and, and nature around us, God was also involved in creating the angelic realm. Okay, now we don't know when he did that. We don't know if that was prior to the creation of the universe, if he was creating the angel realm at the same time he was creating the human realm. We don't know when that took place. And it's not important that we know when, just the fact that he was. But among this angelic creation, there was one who was of the highest order, a stunningly beautiful angel whose name was Lucifer, which means son of the dawn or son of the morning. He was in the presence of God and was blameless in all his ways. Blameless, that is, until he became proud and arrogant on account of his beauty and splendor. So he planned this heavenly coup. It is thought that perhaps as many as one-third of the angels rebelled against him and tried to displace God from his heavenly throne. But no creation of God is greater than the creator. And so the rebellion was, was squashed and he and his demonic disciples were cast out of heaven, and this world has become their temporary home. Now, if you want to read a little bit more about that, check out Isaiah chapter 14, Ezekiel chapter 28, and Revelation chapter 12. These are ideas, folks. It may not have been that way at all, but it seems from Scripture that these may be possible ideas. So the question arises then, well, how can I recognize him? Star Wars introduced us to the personification of evil in the classic character known as Darth Vader. Yeah. All in black, heavy flowing robe, deep empty eyes, a mouth that resembled that of a skull, a helmet reminiscent of Nazi SS troops, the sound of his voice and breathing, voice and breathing from the very pit of hell itself. Even his name sounds sinister, Darth Vader. Evil personified. But that's not how Satan appears. I wish he did. It would be easy to recognize. It'd be easy to run from something like that. But 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen 14 says, Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. He doesn't look like Darth Vader. Doesn't act like Darth Vader. He appears as something good. He's a wolf, but a wolf in sheep's clothing. Listen to all of these terms that are used to describe him in the Scriptures. 
dragon, serpent, prince of this world, accuser of the brothers, tempter, wicked one, destroyer, roaring lion, thief, murderer, adversary, sower of discord, the father of lies, and the list goes on. Jesus, when talking about those who were rejecting his ministry, said in John chapter 8, you belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. He is the enemy of the church. He is the author of persecution. He is cunning and crafty and deceitful. His demonic horde is carefully organized under his authority. He controls fallen angels and influences fallen humanity. And you say, what, what about these demons? Well, can I tell you, I do not believe, personally, I do not believe that the demons are the spirits of wicked, departed people. I believe that the demons under Satan's control who do his bidding in this world are the fallen angels who rebelled with him in this war in heaven. The Bible describes them as worthless, vile, base, vicious, and degenerate beings whose goal is to infiltrate society and this world with those very same characteristics. They have the capacity to possess those with no spiritual resistance. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that next week, so if you've got questions, we'll hang on to those. We'll, we'll come back to that, okay? And as the father of lies, Satan himself tempts us with doubts, half-truths, white lies, total falsehoods, whatever he can use in an attempt to get us to turn against God. He deceives us about God himself. Oh, God, God isn't real. Or God won't mind if you do that. Remember when Eve was, was getting ready to take that fruit in the Garden of Eden, and she, she quotes God, although not quite correctly, but she quotes God, and, and Satan basically says, oh, did God really say that, Eve? He deceives us about sin. Ah, oh, go ahead. You deserve it. Nobody will ever know. God won't mind. Who will catch you? He uses anything and everything for his purpose. He can take something that was intended for good and make it evil in its use. I think one of the greatest uh, uh, creations of technology in human history was the printing press that was designed to increase knowledge among humanity. Satan has taken it and used it to introduce humanity to printed pornography. Drugs that have been developed through the years to help and heal also give humanity ways to escape temporarily and permanently. And for all of its wonderful help, the internet has brought immorality right into our own homes. You see, the work of evil in this world can take even good things and use them for evil purposes. Here's the bottom line. You cannot solve a problem if you do not know its source. And you cannot deal with the temptations that you face if you don't know the source of those temptations and the source of evil that is tempting you. We came home the other night, walked in the door, and the first thing I heard was, you know what that is when you hear that sound. It's a smoke detector that needs a new battery. So I grabbed the stool and I grabbed a battery. Now I went over, replaced it, got down, took the stool off, and I heard chirp. And I thought, okay, bad battery that I had in storage. So I get in the car, drive to the store, buy batteries, come back, put a new one in, take the stool down, chirp. <laughs> I'm a little frustrated by this point in time. 
We have another uh, smoke detector at the other end of the house. I thought, well, I'll go down and check this one out. So I got down there, checked it out, successfully got it chirping. Now I've got two chirping at each end of the house. I don't know why I did that. Finally got the other one stopped, and I go back down, and, and now I'm back up on the stool. I got it off. I've got the battery out. I'm checking the wiring. Chirp. And I mean, how in the world can I do that? I stand there, I'm scratching my head, and I'm looking down, and right underneath our smoke detector is a carbon monoxide detector <laughs> plugged into the outlet below, and that's what had gone bad. You can't solve the problem if you don't know where the problem is. You can't defeat a temptation if you don't understand where the temptation is coming from and the enemy who so desperately wants you to fail. You and I have to learn how to recognize his advancements. Know the source of your problems. So the question comes up then, well, how can I avoid him? All right, let me give you some things very quickly as we wind up our service this morning. They're going to seem simple and easy, but they, they work if we'll do them. Number one, read the Bible. I know that sounds simplistic, but knowing God's word of truth helps you recognize and resist Satan's word of temptation. When Jesus faced Satan's temptations following his baptism, and by the way, Satan usually attacks after some spiritual victory. After his baptism, he went out in the desert, and Satan attempts to tempt him to sin. Each time, Jesus responded by quoting Scripture. He said to each temptation, it is written. I'm telling you, there is power in the Word of God. But you can't quote what you don't know. And I'm here to tell you, it is harder. It's not impossible, but it's harder to yield to temptation when you can remember what the Bible says about the problems of sin. Knowing your Bible will help you face temptation. Not a guarantee, but it will help. Number two, pray. It is harder to sin when you're talking to God. After every time of sin in my life, when the guilt begins to settle in, I, I find myself thinking, why didn't I think about God? Why didn't I stop and pray to God? It's because sin has a way of dulling our senses and simply eradicating us of any conscious awareness of God. And so, if when you are tempted, you will begin immediately to pray, it will help. Because when you can picture God as looking over your shoulder, it's, it's a lot harder to sin. So, pray. Number three, monitor your thoughts and your actions. Be careful what you read, what you watch, where you go, and who you associate with. If certain literature tempts you in your thoughts, then stop reading that kind of literature. If you struggle with internet pornography, get somebody to hold you accountable. Get somebody to put filters on your computer and only they can change the filter so that you can't get past them to get to the internet pornography anymore. If you're fighting alcoholism, don't go where alcohol is being served. If certain people are encouraging you to do something that you know isn't right, change your associations. Whatever the problem is in your life, monitor your thoughts, your actions, your associations. Number, number four, don't fight alone. That's why I am convinced this is why God established his kingdom in this world, because we need reinforcements. What military officer would lead his troops into battle and leave the reinforcements behind? What Christian goes into battle against the arch enemy Satan himself and leaves behind the defenses of the reinforcements that we have in the body of Christ? 
Are you in a small group, a study group? Are you in a life group yet this morning? It's, it's, you, you need to get involved in these. Do you have an accountability partner? Are you taking advantage of some of our support groups here? Do you know what we can offer you? Let me, let me give you a list of some of our support groups. Grief care, divorce care, Narcotics Anonymous, sexual addiction, celebrate recovery large group meetings, parents of children with allergies uh, support, financial assistance, financial counseling, cancer support group, deacon care for widow and widowers, food pantry support, marriage, premarital counseling, life coaching support, military support group, crisis counseling, and the list goes on. We've got others. We will help you. I'm telling you, don't fight these battles alone. Now, here's the good news. Satan is not God's equal. He is not all-powerful. He is not all-knowing. He cannot be everywhere at once. Here's the bad news. Satan is not God's equal, but he's stronger than you alone, and he's stronger than me alone. True, he can only tempt, he can't prevail, but I'm here to tell you that his temptations are incredibly persuasive. And most of us have fallen prey many, many times. Here's the last thing, surrender your life to the Lord. James chapter 4, verses 7 and 8, submit yourselves then to God, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Submit. I prefer the word surrender. Surrender means yielding one's power to that of another. And seldom is surrender viewed as a positive action. Most equate surrender with some kind of a defeat. But I'm here to tell you that sometimes surrender is the decision that leads to life. In 1862, John T. Wilder, colonel of the Indiana 17th Infantry Regiment of the Union Army, commanded a small Union garrison that came under attack by Confederate troops. The Union troops were surrounded and greatly outnumbered, 22,000 to 4,000. Colonel Wilder debated his next move. Should he fight it out or should he surrender? Unable to resolve the dilemma in his own mind, he did something just extraordinary, something unheard of. Under a flag of truce, he approached the battlefield and was escorted to General Braxton Bragg's tent, blindfolded behind the Confederate lines. There he proceeded to ask for the general's advice on what he should do. At which point, General Bragg removed the blindfold and pointed to the cannons that were aimed at the Union garrison and told him to count. Wilder began to count. He got up to 46 and stopped counting because there were dozens more to count. He surrendered his troops, saving thousands of lives. And although two months later he was involved in a prisoner exchange and he went on to distinguish himself as a hero in battle, I'm telling you, he was no greater hero than the day he decided that life was most important and he surrendered. God has challenged us to count the cost, always count the cost, and to surrender our lives to him. He assures us of the victory. We will, not, we will not win our battles alone. And surrendering our lives to God is never the path to defeat. It is always the decision that leads to life and ultimately to life eternal. There is an enemy out there. He's an unseen force, but a force to be reckoned with. And only one can give you victory.